Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. How many of you have been in the kitchen and you've said, hey Alexa, or hey Google, um, how many ounces are in a cup? Come on, raise your hand if you've ever said that. How many ounces are in a cup? The rest of you don't cook, all right? That question is actually one of the most Googled questions of all time. Just behind that is, hey Google, how do I lose weight fast? This is the truth. I mean, they, they do analytics on this. Uh, question, so it's great when you have like a Google or Alexa to get quick information so you can get a recipe right. But my question for you is, where do you turn for your source of truth to get your life right? That's the question that we're going to be talking about today, because life is about relationships, right? And so where do you go to for relationships? So you're wondering, is she the right person to marry? Well, who do you ask about that? Or who do you turn to, or what do you turn to for that wisdom? You get married and you wonder, how can I build a relationship that will actually go the distance? Who do you ask? Your parents, they have advice about how your marriage should go. And you're asking the question, how do I keep my parents out of my marriage? You have kids that you're wondering, how do I not screw up these little human beings, right? Where do you go to for that truth? The stress of your kids creates conflict in your marriage, and you're wondering, how now do I apologize to my spouse? You can't seem to fit work and family time all into your life, and you're wondering, how do I actually prioritize this? How do, how do I get this right? Your coworkers, they're not always so great. And so you're wondering, well, how do I handle conflict? How do I resolve conflict? And on top of all of this, you're asking the question, like, who is God? Where is he in my life? And who, who am I based off of what God thinks of me? And how do I stay connected to God? All of these are great questions. When we have a decision to make, are we asking this question? What does the Bible say about that? I mean, it's not just relationships, right? The Bible speaks about finances, business, self-assessment, the question like, who am I? Self-discipline, how do I change? It talks about character, your role in life. Are we asking this question? What does the Bible say about that? So I want us to consider today where our truth comes from. I want us to consider if the Bible really has priority in our lives. I want us to ask if we've given God's word authority to lead us. And so to do this, I'm going to ask you to join me in something. We need to travel back 500 years and take a look at the history of where this argument, this truth comes from. Now stop, look at me. Some of you just heard history and you went, because you're like, this guy's about to tell some stories from history. And here's what I believe. I'm going to give you three dates, three things that happen in history that every single Christian should know. Now, if you want to be an uninformed, uneducated, uh, simple Christian that doesn't actually know what the Christian faith means, then you're welcome not to listen. But there's no people like that here. There's not even people like that listening online. We all want to know what the essentials are to the Christian faith. And so um, the question 500 years ago was this. What or who has the authority to determine truth? And the next five weeks, I'm going to talk about five things that we gained from 500 years ago that that are what we call the solas. The word sola, it's a Latin word. It means only or alone. 
only or alone. And today I'm going to talk about sola scriptura, which means this, only the scriptures. And it's short, sola scriptura is, is short for only the scriptures have authority in my life to determine what is true, what is right, who God is, who I am, how I follow God. And I just am going to call us into question on do we really, 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 really believe that our lives, the foundation of the wisdom of how we live, is it really based off of this book? Because 500 years ago, there were some people who gave their lives for that truth. I'll get to that. You know that we live in a world today um, where people have a lot of opinions about what is truth. And most of our truth is based off of our own opinions and preferences. And so I want us to take a look at these three dates in history that's going to shape this talk about what relying on only the Scriptures really means. So here we go. Three dates. And by the way, to stay engaged with us, grab a pen. You have a pen right there. I love it. That's so great. She's going to write some things down. Grab a pen. It's right there in front of the chair in front of you, okay? Write down in your notes these things. Uh, The first date, 1517. There's this guy. He's an Augustinian monk, which means he's a part of the Catholic church. His name is Martin Luther. And in his study of the scriptures, he, he realizes that there were these truths and practices being taught by the church and being practiced by the church that were not actually in the Bible. So he wrote up what is known as the 95 Theses. It's these short statements that were truths, problems he had, issues, differences that he had with the Roman Catholic Church, and he nails them on the Wittenberg door for the public to see. These are his grievances against the church. Now, My assumption is this. There are very few of us in the room right now that have ever read the 95 Theses, okay? Before I ever read them, I always had the assumptions about what they were about, and I was actually pretty wrong about that. Let me tell you, here's here's what the 95 Theses are really about. At the core of it, it's this. What does the Bible say about the sale of indulgences? I've actually never preached those words like the sale of indulgences, because I know most of you are like, I have no idea what that's about. Let me give it to you real quick. Um, worldhistory.org says this, indulgences were writs purchased. It's a piece of paper. It's a, a, an authority that is purchased for the remission of sins for the living or for the dead suffering torment for their sins in purgatory. You're like, well, what, what, what's purgatory? It's believed that like after you die, there's a holding place that before you actually get to enter a holy heaven, you got to have a little bit of sin burned off you just a little bit. And so it's a place where you pay for some of your sins before you go to heaven. This continues. All one had to do was pay a certain amount of money to receive a writ that pardoned one's sins while living or shortened the stay of a loved one in purgatory. Meaning if you had enough money, you could purchase it for someone who's already died, who you think is going to heaven, but they weren't all that great. So you had to like pay for some of their sins so they could get out of purgatory early. Do not pass, go, whatever. Indulgences were for people who wanted to get out early and purgatory is where you paid for that. So where do you get indulgences? Like you're purchasing goodness, right? Well, clearly... You get those from the treasury of merit. Well, what is that? Well, there's really good 
priests and, and people who have done so many good things that it just stores up all these good deeds. And so they will share their good deeds. With you. They will actually give you their good deeds because those good deeds actually help burn off a little bit of that sin that you got in purgatory. After a careful study of God's word, Martin Luther asked, what does the Bible say about that? His conclusion, nothing. Google it. What does the Bible say about indulgences? The word is not in there. What does the Bible say about purgatory? Nothing. Now, by the way, I'm going to say this. Some of you come from a Catholic background. Some of you might be Roman Catholic. And um, this is going to be one of those that kind of shows the division that happened 500 years ago. I love you. I hope you will keep searching the word. I hope you won't walk out on me in this moment or change the channel to Wimbledon. Um, I hope that you'll, you'll listen. Because my question to you is the same for everybody. What does the Bible say about that? Luther came to the conclusion that it doesn't actually say anything about that. That's why his 95 theses were, I have a problem with these indulgences. Because what it became for the Roman Catholic Church is a way to make money and build more buildings. And it wasn't actually for the poor. They were handing them out to the rich. Which means, wait, 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 if, if, if you can actually get a remission of sins and it was more favorable to the rich than the poor, where is the equity in that? Where is the equality in that? <clears throat> there was a Dominican theologian named Sylvester uh, Prierius who responded to Luther's 95 Theses. And uh, this is a statement that he made in response to Luther, and uh, it'll show up here. It says, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome. Pontiff of Rome were the, the, the high priests. There was like this college of pontiffs. They had this authority to declare what was true and right. He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. We'll, we'll get to what happens to heretics in just a moment. Um, what is this saying? You have to agree that whatever it is, the Pope, who is the highest pontiff, or the council beneath him, the pontiffs, the leadership, the, the, the council of churches, whatever it is that they declared to be true, that's where truth comes from. But listen to this. The Holy Scriptures, too, draw their strength and, the, and authority from these head people, which means this. Whatever your pastor says is true is true. Even if the word of God doesn't agree with them. I'm here to tell you today, please don't trust me. I'm just asking, what does the Bible say about that? By this statement, the highest authority is the Pope, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the pontiffs, and the traditions of the church. For you and I to know what is true and right, we have to go to a person, not God's word. Luther, um, Luther was an edgy guy. Let me just say this. Luther was an edgy guy. He pointed out that Prierius didn't actually quote any scripture or go to the scripture for any of his truth. He just said, well, here's what the church always teaches. And so Luther came back with this quote, like an insidious devil, you pervert the scriptures. He's not making any friends at this point. He's being super clear about it, but then Luther went on to describe how the teachings of the Catholic Church actually violate the Scriptures. So you got the first date down, 1517, Luther's 95 Theses. The second one, that led to this question. Who or what has the final authority on truth? So here's the second date, 1519, two years later, 1519. The Leipzig debate. 
Martin Luther was faced by this guy, Johann Eck. Now, Luther and Eck beforehand, they actually had this a, a fairly cordial relationship. It's not they liked each other, disliked each other, this cordial um, relationship. But this debate turned very personal. And at some point in the, the debate, uh, Luther referred to Eck as the little glory-hungry beast. In this moment, Eck is arguing that Scripture receives authority from the Pope. The Catholic councils and the traditions of the church. And Martin Luther, he argues back that scripture actually has the highest authority over any popes, any councils, traditions, church fathers. Because in the past, popes have changed their mind from pope to pope to pope. One pope would say, oh, this is true. And the next one would come along and say, no, 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 we're going to give you a different truth. How can someone who is infallible keep changing their mind? They have to say, at that point, I was wrong. But they don't. A quote from Luther at the Leipzig debate is this. Not only is Scripture our infallible authority, listen to this, but a schoolboy with Scripture in his hand is better fortified than the Pope himself. He's going after it. He's putting his life on the line for, for this truth, and he will not let it go. Now, Johann Eck, he was actually a really famous historian. He was really well-versed in the history of the church. And at one point in the debate, he looks at Luther and he says, you are a Hussite. I don't think Luther quite knew what he meant. He didn't call him a hussy. That's different. He called him a Hussite. There was this guy a hundred years before Luther named John Huss, or Jan Huss is actually his name. Um, he had some problems with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1415, when Huss voiced these, he was accused of being a heretic. And as a heretic, he was marched before a crowd, tied to a stake, and lit on fire, and burned by the church. So when Johann Eck says, you're a Hussite, do you see where this is headed? Saying, Luther, if you're wrong, and if you don't recant, if you don't turn away from your teachings, the same thing that happened to Huss is going to happen to you. History records that John Huss, as he was led to his death, was singing songs. And this is one of the lines that he sung. Today you burn a goose. But in a hundred years, a swan will arise, which you will prove unable to boil or boast. Roast, excuse me. In a hundred years, there's going to be someone that you can't kill, that you can't get rid of. And people actually believe that this was actually a prophetic word that Martin Luther would come along. And they would not be able to silence him. They would not be able to kill him. Did anybody grow up in a Lutheran church? Anybody? Raise your hand. No? 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 Yes. In a pulpit, do you ever see a swan? In, in, in the pulpit, sometimes they'll be carved in there. Or there'll be a swan on top of, of the Lutheran pulpit somewhere in the front. It's because they believe that Luther, Martin Luther, was the swan that he had talked about. Because it was in Luther's day that the church actually divided. And we'll get to this in a moment, but they actually couldn't kill Luther. At the de- debate, when he was called a Hussite, they took this break, and so Luther went back, and he wasn't quite the historian that, that Eck was. And so he started reading about the council where Huss was accused of, of being a heretic. And he started reading all the things that Huss believed, and he came back to the council, and he said, I am a Hussite. And Eck thought, I've got him now. 
We're going to take him to the stake. We're going to burn him. We're going to kill him. He's going to, this is it. It's over with. The problem was this. People loved Luther. He was like this hero of the poor people who couldn't afford those indulgences. He was like a hero to them. That He was resisting the establishment of this structure that put heavy weights on the poor people. They knew that they would have an uprising so they couldn't kill him. But Pope Leo X, he threatened Luther with what's called a papal bull. Which means this. It really is a declaration, a written declaration, that they are a heretic and they are excommunicated from the church. And so the Roman Catholic Church believed this. That if you were excommunicated, you were actually outside of relationship with God. Because only in the authority of the Pope and the, the pontiffs could they declare that you were actually in God's family. So they believed that Luther was now outside of God's family. So um, Luther took this written papal bull, brought it in public, and lit it on fire. He was a bold dude. His case of being a heretic was actually turned over to the Roman authorities. Who summoned him to appear what was called the Diet of Worms. I know in your notes it says worms. It is written correctly and is pronounced worms. It is a place in Germany. Here's your third date, 1521, two years later. This is the moment in history that the church went like this. There's the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a whole branch off of this known as the Protestant Church. Because these people were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. If you're a follower of Jesus in this evangelical community, you're a Protestant. You're a protester against what was taught 500 years ago. And this is one of the key teachings is sola scriptura. So uh, this whole Diet of Worms, Luther was excommunicated January 5th of uh, 1521. And this went all the way. It ended in May 23rd. Is a really long process. They met in Worms, Germany. And in this room were the highest level of leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. But also was the Roman Emperor, Charles V. And they put all of Martin Luther's books on the table in front of them. And they said two things. One, are these your teachings? Are these your writings? Are these your books? Did you pen these? Yes. Martin Luther, do you recant of your teachings and these, these things that are not of the Roman Catholic Church? Do you recant? And he boldly said, can I get back to you on that? Can we talk tomorrow about that? That night, you can imagine what's going on through Martin Luther's head. God, what do I do? God, help me. God, how do I stand for the thing that I believe, knowing what happened to John Huss? And at the very heart of this, let me read to you what is the Roman Catholic catechism today on this issue. Quote, the church does not derive for certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. They do not believe in sola scriptura. That's what that means. But Scripture and tradition, and traditions are established by whatever the church leadership says we're going to do. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment, devotion, and reverence. And we need to add to here, just so this is clear, that the Pope's authority sits at least on par with scripture, if not over scripture, because it's said that the Pope can speak ex cathedra on his own authority. He doesn't have to quote the Bible to prove his point. And like I said earlier, the problem is that popes have changed their mind over the years. So how can you not be infallible? How can you speak the very words of God? When your words keep changing, 
but God's word never does. Luther comes back the very next day and he says this in one of the most famous quotes in all of the Protestant churches. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That's courage. He was declared a heretic, an outlaw, which actually meant this. Anyone could kill him and not face any penalties for it. The prince of his region where he comes from Germany, Frederick III, as Luther was leaving, kidnaps him, brings him to his castle where he puts him under guard so that no one can get to him. Luther didn't actually die because someone killed him. But he was a huge part of what was known as the Reformation. The protest of the Protestant church. There were other guys along with him, John Huss, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon. They gave us, in this period of history, the five solas. The five things that stand alone. In the next weeks to come, I'll share with you the other four. But today, it's this. It's, we stand on Scripture alone. And we're still divided over this issue. The Catholic Church and the Protestant Church will never come to agreement on this. The Reformation was a protest for these five things. So let me make really clear something here. What sola scriptura is not, okay? It's in your notes there. It does not mean that Scripture is our only authority. You know what the Scripture says? The governing authority of your land is actually an authority in your life. Follow it. Let me make sense of this. Santa Clara County. State of California, federal government, there are authorities in your life. The scripture says, follow them. Now, whenever Protestant preachers preach on this, they always jump to the butt right away. And the butt is, but in the moment that they tell you to do something that is ungodly, then you can revolt or at least not obey them, right? The scripture says that your parents are authority in your life. And your life will go much, much better if you follow their authority. Well, until when? Until how old I am? What does the scripture say about that? The scripture isn't our only authority. It's just the supreme authority. It is far above our government, our parents. Your pastor is an authority in your life. But not even close to what the scriptures say. So I would tell you, don't trust me. Search what the scriptures, what does the scriptures say about that? Second thing is, uh, sola scripture does not mean that scripture is our only source of information. You're sick. You want to know what kind of medication you should use? Go see a doctor. He's your source of information. You need to figure out how many ounces are in a cup? Google it. But when you're talking about the meaning of life, who is God? Who are we? What does the future hold? How can we know God? What does it mean to be in relationship with God? And how about this one? What does God expect from all of his followers? Don't go to me. Go to the Word of God. Don't go to your community group for that source. Go here first. No matter what your leader or your pastor says, if it doesn't support it from Scripture, we're missing the point of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura does not mean that history or traditions don't matter. History matters. Traditions, the the, the things that we practice together, 
what we sing, how we sing, how we preach, they matter. But they're all way beneath the authority of Scripture. Sola Scripture does mean this, that the Bible and the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. The Reformation, the protest of these men in history, those who gave their lives for this, was about the misuse and the abuse of Scripture. I'm going to say this. I think we have to put the protest back in Protestantism. You live in a world, I live in a world, where people don't care at all about what this means. And I get it. They just, they don't understand. I don't hold it against them. But do we just become like them? I mean, they're going to think we're fools for believing in an ancient book. Really? That's how you're going to make your financial decisions? That's how you're going to make your marriage decisions? How you raise your kids? This is the thing that's going to tell you how to live. It's going to dictate your morality and your ethics. It's going to dictate the fact that you forgive people. We don't forgive people. We cancel people. That's what the culture will tell you. Someone doesn't like you. Someone doesn't agree with you. Just cancel them. Walk away from them. You're done with them. So if it says it, I'm going to learn it, I'm going to live it, and I will deal with the consequences of it. we got to put the protest back in this. That we live in a lost world that doesn't know what is true and what is right. There's a book in the Old Testament called Judges, and it's super interesting. In the middle and the end of it, it states this. Everyone did as they saw fit. I was like, oh, when I read that, I got the chills. I was like, this is exactly the world that we live in. Everyone just does as they saw it fit. Oh, you have a truth? That's super good for you that that's your truth. You can follow an old dusty book. That's awesome. Here's my truth. This is what's true for me. Like, really, you want to be the authority in your life about what is true and what is right? Here's what's interesting. The common denominator for every bad decision you've ever made is you. You were always there when stuff got messed up. You are welcome to be the authority in your life, but every time things got jacked, you did something done, the only common denominator was you. That seems, that seems silly. That we would want to declare that we are the ultimate authority in our lives, but we live in a world that just says everybody does as they see fit. Everyone has an ultimate authority. We realize this, right? Everyone does. And for most people, it's their preference. Their preference is the, their own authority in their life. Do you really, do you really want to follow a God that always agrees with you? I don't. Because when I've run by my own authority, I've often left a wake of destruction in my path. If you're a young person, man, the university system, you face a more difficult world than I have ever known because our culture is so set against you. They think you're a fool for believing in a book. Now, I want to make this super clear. Today is not a message about why I think we actually have the very words of God, okay? If you want to ask that question, that's a great question. I would encourage you to do this. Get this book, J. Werner Wallace. I think it's the initial, J. Werner Wallace. That's his name. And he writes this book called Cold Case Christianity. Look it up. Read it. He gives a great um, argument for why he believes that the, the very book that we hold is inspired by God. That's not actually what I'm asking today. But 
I know that this message is going to raise questions with you. So can I, I say this? If you have questions, email me. Ask them. Write them down right now if you want to. You can hand them to me afterwards. And I'll do my best, maybe in a Friday video that I typically send out. Or next Sunday, maybe I'll begin with your questions and see if I can answer a couple of those quickly. Um, but listen, if you're going to ask me that question, would you please ask this question, what does the Bible say about that? You know what's funny? You can even Google it. What does the Bible say about, and then put your question in. But make sure you're not reading someone's opinion. It has to direct you to a verse, all right? Here's what I want to do. I realize I've read no scripture on a sermon about scripture. I'm going to get really practical, really fast with six last things. So here we go. What does sola scriptura require of Christians? Number one, sola scriptura means we humbly submit to the authority of God's word. This is what God's word claims about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, not some of scripture, not part of scripture, but all scripture is God-breathed. Peter would later write about how the prophecies of scripture, the prophets of scripture, they were actually driven along by the spirit of God in their writings. All scripture is God-breathed, meaning it's from God. But you might go, oh, it's from God, big deal. Is it actually helpful? Look at the next part. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Have you ever thought, you know what? I've always wanted to, but ah, I'm just not equipped to do that. Then start reading. The scriptures claim that the very, the, the very book that we hold is actually from God, but the requirement is this, that when we read it, we will humbly submit to what it says. I've been reminded in the last couple of weeks so much of life is about relationships. We just got done teaching a series about what love is. Love is patient, love is kind. It goes on from there. Remember that series? Remember why it starts with love is patient? It's because people are messed up. And we would love to rewrite that to say love is convenient. Or love is easy. Or love is possible when the other person is lovable. But the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he loved us when we were ugly. He loved us when we were broken. He says this, love is patient. But the world says, love people as long as they love you back. But when they harm you, when they violate something, when they violate one of your values, then you know what? You can write them off and walk away. It's a lie. It's not true. But I can just be honest with you guys. We fail to live up to this all the time. The Bible says, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Jesus said, the same way I forgive you, I want you to forgive others. The same way I washed your feet, I did the grungiest thing possible to my 12 followers, even the one who would betray me. Now go serve people like that. Really? I'll serve people as long as it uses my skills and abilities and I shine in that moment. I'm frustrated, you guys. Because we don't forgive, we don't love. Well, let's just talk about generosity for a minute. Okay, can I just say, I love you guys. If you need to, put your arms around yourself, give yourself a little hug. That's from me. I love you. 
But listen, generosity, the scriptures doesn't say give so you feel generous. There's actually a number attached to it. It's 10%. Now, if some of you, you know, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, man, churches, they're always just after your money. Like, I'm not. I'm after your heart. Jesus is after your heart. 10% is a sign that he's after your heart, but do we actually live that out? I'll leave that alone. Number two, sola scriptura. Means we boldly put the protest back in Protestant. If you, what you believed was not true, would you really want to know? If you had a faulty belief, do you want to be shown that? Let me just read to you what Martin Luther wrote in the Diet of Worms. He wrote this, Through the mercy of God, I ask anyone of any standing to testify and refute my errors. He's inviting correction to contradict them with the Old and New Testament. I am ready, if better instructed, to recant any error, and I shall be the first to throw my writings into the fire. Show me where I'm wrong, and I will give up that truth. He was inviting that. Are we willing to look at our world and go, you know what? I know there's not a lot of people that agree with me in the midst of this, but I'm going to stand up for sola scriptura, that the word of God is the authority of my life, and I'm going to live that way. Third thing. Sola Scriptura means we search the Scriptures for answers to our problems and questions. Questions and problems. I love Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. The divine, divinely inspired word of God says, the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. God, I have this problem. I don't know what to do next. Do you ask the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? And now we start reading, we start searching. You can even Google, what does the Bible say about parenting? Do we actually go find an answer? If we believe in Sola Scriptura, we do. We're going to go search for answers. In our staff, over the last year, we've actually been working on a clarifying of our vision of who we are. One of those is, is about the values that we hold. And I can very clearly, confidently tell you at least one of the values that we have right now. And, and it's this. It's tattered Bibles since 1850. I know you're like, well, that's kind of a weird value. I don't even really know what it means. This church began in 1850 as the First Baptist Church of San Jose. Today we call it Church on the Hill. 172 years that we've been a church. We've been a church longer than California has been a state. And one of the values that we have hold, held from the very, very beginning is this, is that sola scriptura, the word of God, we're going to have tattered Bibles in this church. I know y'all got your digital device. Nothing against a digital Bible. But the primary, I have one too, and I read it, but the primary Bible I read from is paper. It's open in my home in the morning. I carry it in my backpack to work. I open it to study and learn, and I write all over it so I can remember. I memorize from it. It's super helpful to have something digital to go to, particularly when you're in a pinch or like, oh, I don't have my Bible on me. But I'm just going to challenge you with this. (laughs) When your kids, parents, they watch you on your phone, you might be reading your Bible, but they think you're answering emails. That's not life-changing for them. When you have the word of God open, it's, they're like, wow, my mom, my dad, they believe that. It's a part of the rhythm of their life. I believe that a person whose Bible is actually falling apart because it's so tattered, their life is not. The person whose Bible is falling apart, their life is not. Now, um, I want to make sure I say this clearly because it's super tempting to go, um, okay, I have a problem. I have a question. I'm going to search the scriptures to find the answer. And you read one verse that might actually just barely hint that you're on the right track. 
I think sometimes we go to the scriptures to find a half a verse that might agree with our opinion. Come on. Anybody? Because, man, she's cute. And I want to date her. And I I think we should get married. And, like, "Mm, I got this new job offer, and it actually pays me more money. But because I'm holy, that doesn't factor in at all. Um, It's just uh, the the best opportunity. And you search for a verse that just tells you what you want to hear. Which is why I have this next point, number four. Sola Scriptura means we build up a treasury of wisdom so we can access the whole counsel of God's word, not just a verse to justify our, our opinion. You can always find something in the scripture that might sound sweet, like, oh yeah, I found something to agree with me. But what we really want to do is consider the whole counsel of God's word. I was just reading this this week. Proverbs 22 says, pay attention. Turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have them ready on your lips. It's like you've got them stored up in your mind and in your heart and like a situation arises and then that verse comes to mind that you already memorized or you read last week and you're like, God, is this you speaking to me and telling me like this is the verse to apply? This will require a lifestyle though of putting God's word in your heart. Five, I gotta keep cruising through here. We're almost there. Solo Scriptura means when we gather in groups, we elevate scriptures over our opinions. When the church first gathered together after Jesus comes back to life, this described them. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to learning from the word of God. Okay, I love you. But I'm committed to being honest with you. There's something that drives me personally crazy. I've led community groups for years. And I know, if you don't understand our community groups and how they work, um, they're all sermon-based. And so whatever it is we've studied in the notes, in a community group season when they're actually meeting, there's a series of questions there and some more scriptures for you to look up and digest God's Word so that when you come together, you can talk about God's Word. But the thing that drives me a a little... uh, that I get slightly disappointed at, how about that, is when we gather together and people haven't read the Bible. Now, even if they miss the message, it's online to listen to, but I don't want them to just listen to me. I'm just a pastor. And we sit in the group and you quickly realize like, oh, no one's read the Bible. No one's answered the questions. And so all we're really doing is sitting around talking about our opinions about what we think. When there's a guy by the name of John Huss that said, no, it's scripture and scripture alone, and I'm willing to be burned at the stake for it, and we're like, man, I got busy this week. It's no wonder that we struggle to follow the word of God. We don't even know it. Or we're not willing to let God speak to us in it. So when we gather as a church on Sunday morning, when we gather as a church and community group, I beg of you to allow sola scriptura to live inside you, that the wisdom of God might come out because it lives richly in you. Sorry, I'll relax in a minute. Lastly, sola scriptura. It means that all other sources of wisdom are far beneath the authority of scripture. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God, it's alive. And it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. You want to know what's going on inside of you? Read the word of God. It will not just reveal God to you. It will reveal yourself to you. God, these are my selfish wants and desires. God, these are the good things that live in me. 
everything else, all the other authorities in our life are so far beneath the authority of Scripture. Do you, do you live that way, though? Do we have the rhythms of life where we have this treasure stored up in us? This is a non-negotiable. Sola Scriptura. No other authority other than the Scriptures. We will never compromise on that. It's a non-negotiable for us. But just because we state it as a non-negotiable for the church, we have to live that out. And it is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. But it will take the immature and make them mature. It will take the weak and it will make them strong. It will take the feeble and give them courage. It will take those who are afraid and it will give them the strength to live and follow Jesus in a culture that does not respect him. I want the best for you. I want to see mature believers rise up all over this church. And Sola Scriptura is one of the ways that makes that happen. I'm going to invite our band out and come out and lead us in a time of worship. And I was thinking about how do we respond to this. And I just want to respond in praying. And maybe, um, maybe your response is this. Maybe it's humility to say, God, I actually haven't lived according to your word, just really my preferences. Maybe that would lead to courage to say, God, I feel like you want me to take a stand on this and I'm going to go do this. Maybe it's just confession. God, (laughs) yeah, I haven't read it. I haven't walked in it. I haven't followed it. I'm just going to confess that today. Maybe it's discipline. God, I'm going to take a step in establishing brand new disciplines and rhythms in my life. Hey, you guys have been listening patiently for a long time. But I want you to just keep asking the question. What does the Bible have to say about that? And be people of his word. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the patience of those in this room and those online. That they have um, they've watched my rant. But Lord, I know this. That um, when I have disregarded your word, I've disregarded wisdom at times. And it's led to painful moments in my life. And I do believe, God, that there are two great teachers in life, pain or wisdom. And through your word, Lord, we'll, we'll gain the wisdom that we need to live. So, Father, I pray that there's a transformation that's happening right now. Because that Bible is not just a book sitting on our shelf. It's it's words of life. It's a story of, of your great love for us and your redemption of us by Jesus on the cross. Lord, help us to take a, a back seat in our opinions to the truth of the word of God and live by it. Give us courageous spirits, God, to do that. If you agree with that, and if you want that in your life, would you simply say, amen.